Chapter 16, Distribution Woes. Look, I'm not really into being humiliated publicly. So what are you going to do with your movie now? What was like the point uh, of making your movie? Oh, you're going to a festival? What are you going to do there, though? People are just going to watch it or something? You'll hear this from your inquisitors, who place undue pressure on filmmakers after they've already pulled off the magic trick that is producing and editing a film, however good or bad. Like the film itself, I have to go a little zen in my response. Well, my top priority is just to show it to as many people as want to see it, so the festivals are just fun ways to screen the film to people in different cities. I'm not really looking for anything more than that. Why don't you get it on Netflix or something? The person harassing you in this situation isn't normally educated on the current, hopeless, and hilarious state of independent film distribution, though they're smart enough to know that Netflix would be a good get. The fact is, the three experiences I've had, prior to having fun, at the so-what-are-you-going-to-do-with-your-movie-now stage, have been depressing comedies of error. I Need to Lose 10 Pounds had very low goals, to be distributed by Troma Entertainment. As far as studios to distribute your film go, signing with them is like getting a D- in math so you can still go to summer camp. You just barely didn't fail. But to 20-year-old Frankie, signing with them was the dream. Their books, films, and special features were key in developing my filmmaking identity, and bringing 10 pounds to them was like a holy pilgrimage. In 2006, Chris Shalesky, Nina's brother, and I attended Troma's, at that time, Park City-based film festival, Troma Dance, where 10 Pounds won their top prize. We actually didn't see the film screen because it didn't work with our college schedules, but we did come out for the following weekend in the interest of meeting Lloyd Kaufman and the Tromites to see what our distribution prospects looked like. It was naive, but at the time we thought festivals were the places where deals happened. They may have at one time, but no longer. The award was pretty cool. I think it was $1,000 in film from Kodak, one of their big sponsors, which I promptly sold to a film student because I certainly wouldn't know what to do with celluloid. But the award was announced almost a year after the festival took place. In the meanwhile, we had interested Troma in distributing 10 pounds and were put in touch with their acquisitions department, an intern in his 20s who cycles out every few months. I remember them being very responsive and easy to get in touch with when they were asking for the materials and contract. The document was pretty boilerplate, except it was explicit in owning the film for 20 years, and it contained no requirement for Troma to release the film within that time. In other words, they could just sit on it, and I wouldn't have the rights to release it myself, whether it be a free upload on YouTube, selling DVDs on my website, or holding private screenings. Technically, those rights all belong to Troma exclusively. But what did I care? These were my heroes. They would know what to do with it. The process of signing your film over to a distribution company is referred to as selling your movie, but for independent film distribution, it's really a donation. The trauma contract was superficially attractive. I think it offered me 30% of all domestic sale revenue and over 50% of all international sale revenue. The finer print detailed that I don't make a dime until all upfront expenses are recovered. These costs included cover art and the costs of producing DVDs. We had already decided to use the cover art Alan Damaris, the star, had made for our self-released DVDs, so Troma wouldn't be designing anything, but they still charge a premium that comes out of your piece, somehow. Those costs were some wacky, inflated figure that ensured you would never see any money from your movie's sales. And I didn't care. Troma, my heroes at Troma, were releasing my film. I held a private screening of 10 pounds at the University of Massachusetts at Dartmouth, which actually garnered some attention and a good crowd. We had been covered in all the local papers, with really nice colored photos and interviews with me. I remember my sister had planned to go, and was getting gas in our hometown when the attendant asked her if she was going to go see that film tonight. The downside was that our community was largely conservative and elderly, and 10 pounds is, well, 10 pounds. It's a disgusting, depraved, immature, dumb-as-rocks film, and Westport's elderly community, as well as people I knew from childhood and friends of family, attended. 
A few walked out, but for the most part, the crowd of 200 did everything they could to make me feel like a famous filmmaker. During my Q&A, I told my public that 10 pounds would be coming out on DVD that summer of 2006. It was March when I was speaking. In stores, released by Trauma Entertainment. Thunderous applause. Even the old ladies knew. That was pretty cool. 20-year-old Frankie definitely didn't know to not count his chickens before they hatch. Troma's communication with me disintegrated, with the occasional email here and there. One afternoon, to my shock, they called me. They said they were going to try to market it as a gay film, as part of a gay film series of Troma releases. How is it gay? I asked. Well, I don't know. I guess there's a lot of gay jokes and lots of guys running around after each other and, like, not a lot of women. I couldn't argue with the logic. It felt like a dishonest and ineffective way of selling the film, and I found that a little disappointing. But I was still just happy they were packaging my film for distribution. Years later, I acted in a trauma release called Psycho Sleepover, directed by my friend Adam Dio, who made a film previously released by Trauma titled Yeti, A Love Story. When acquired by Trauma, they renamed it to Yeti, A Gay Love Story, with a pink design to the DVD. I'm all about gay cinema, and with Sexually Frank, I've since made a film that contained a lot of actual gay content. But it was clear that Trauma was just shoehorning homosexuality into its releases, no matter how absurd. It felt like a joke I didn't get. A few weeks later, they called me and proposed that the film not get a standard DVD release, but that it be offered through a service in which the buyer can burn their own DVD and print the case and discard themselves. The year was 2006, and DVD as a medium had only just begun its downward spiral. Until that point, the low costs of producing and shipping DVDs, combined with the added value of behind-the-scenes featurettes and commentaries and higher-quality video, meant record profit margins for home video, especially as it pertained to independent film. Throughout the early 2000s, horror buffs and movie geeks amassed huge DVD collections, often raiding bargain bins for the most bizarre independent films they could find. Troma's business was rejuvenated, both by VHS and then DVD. A lot of low-end DVD distributors were able to take risks on their acquisitions, and with the right cover art, often just like a knife and maybe a naked woman, even the worst filmmakers could make a few thousand dollars off a film sale. Troma, like these low-end distributors, took a quantity-over-quality approach to film distribution. I so desperately wanted 10 pounds to be one of those trashy bargain bin DVDs. But to my grave disappointment, Troma wanted to take advantage of a make-your-own-DVD service, which not only cheapened the release of the film, in my eyes, but would never take off. Who would ever print their own DVD disc and cover art? I agreed reluctantly, because what else could I do? The film's lack of recognizably sellable indie staples, gore and nudity, were missing from the poster and the content, and Troma was struggling with it. And it didn't matter, because after that point, Troma stopped contacting me entirely. The big release of summer 2006 flew by, and to this day in 2014, I'm not aware of any plans to release 10 pounds. I poked and prodded dozens of acquisition interns over the years, and have never received a response. I've even caught up with Lloyd a number of times, who has a revelation every time I mention it. Oh, yeah, 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 we have to do that. Here, email Kyle, Zach, Tori, Brandon at Troma.com. Sometime in 2009, I read one of his many new filmmaking books that described the awkward feeling he has when an independent filmmaker asks him for a status on a film that Troma has never released. Psycho Sleepover's distribution deal only added insult to injury. Clearly, they do release films sometimes. At one point, I contacted their PR person instead of acquisitions and asked that Troma list the film in its filmography on their website. He responded and did so happily, so since then, 10 Pounds has been an official Troma film with absolutely no release. Years after that, as a gift to all the fans, Troma uploaded nearly all of its film library to watch for free on YouTube, including all of its flagship titles, Tromeo and Juliet, Class of Newcomb High, etc., and smaller movies, like their making of documentaries and even Psycho Sleepover. 
but no 10 pounds. I have considered asking them, at this rate, why not upload 10 pounds of the rest? But I don't expect they would answer me, and I'm past it. So it's understandable that when I made ABO, I was uninterested in signing with Troma. I felt I had made a twisted satire, and I had even refrained from any content that would garner the equivalent of an R rating. PG-13 language, no nudity, very brief gore. 10 pounds was so trauma-focused, I had only submitted it to Trauma Dance. ABO was my first big festival push, and I was naive to think that a film about a half-man, half-ape would be accepted by anyone but the trauma community, who mostly rejected it for not being obscene and twisted enough. The film did, nevertheless, screen at Trauma Dance 2008, but I didn't attend. When I was rejected by all remaining festivals I had submitted to, probably an additional 15, I gave up on ever doing anything with the film and moved on to making Sexually Frank. But by late 2009, a producer's rep, not to be named, contacted me, interested in lending their services to sell the film for distribution for an upfront fee, $8,000. This ends kind of badly. In film school, they teach you to never sign with an agent who asks for upfront cash, that all payment to an agent should come out of a revenue percentage. But those same rules don't apply to producer's reps. They do charge upfront fees, presumably because they have the ability to get your film through the gates of studios and in front of acquisitions departments. This outfit had clearly watched the film, reported to be big fans, and insisted that it was viable for distribution, if not from a major studio, then from a medium to small-sized distributor. We can't guarantee we'll sell this film, their contract would state clearly, but we can give you the best shot at in-store distribution the film has. One of the co-founders of this company was a professor at one of the biggest film schools in the world, and the other had a wide range of experience in film distribution. I researched them as extensively as I could, and found nothing that would indicate that they were a scam or illegitimate. That didn't necessarily mean that they were a good investment, but they weren't outright cheats. I also researched producers' reps, discovering that some of my favorite filmmakers were aided in their first major distribution deals by producers' reps. After some Googling, there was a clear consensus. Producers' reps are risks that sometimes provide important value. As much as it was tempting to pawn the film's distribution onto another party that wasn't me, because I was bound to fail, $8,000 was too much money. I passed. They dropped it to seven, then six, then five as a final offer. It really, really felt like a gamble, and possibly a bad one. The film production itself cost a fraction of $5,000. I talked it over with everyone I respected, and even those I didn't. Some supported the idea, some rejected it outright, and some were lukewarm. A longtime filmmaker and facilities manager at my school, a crazy old man named Pete, probably gave me the best advice, which I now wish I took. If you're willing to make a $5,000 investment in the future of the film, why not just submit to $5,000 worth of festivals? The probability of something positive happening is much higher. Nina and I, by this point in our lives, were making a combined income of about $70,000. We were living rent-free at her dad's house, and were saving for a home and a life. Although our combined salary was modest, we could afford to take a $3,000 risk on a film that we were already spending $2,000 making. John Hunt, who had been privy to most of the conference calls on this issue, determined with us that it would be, if nothing else, an interesting risk in seeing how effective a producer's rep could be. John would throw in $2,000. I thought I was going to be a film professor at the time, and figured that if it was a disaster, at least I could tell my students to not sign with producer's reps. I'm not a film professor today, nor do I intend to become one anytime soon, but I am writing this book. So here goes. Don't ever sign with a producer's rep. Like trauma before them, the hounding for my attention slowed to a crawl after the money order and contract were sent. We started having periodic conference calls, where they would often bring on a calming female voice to tell me about how all of the studios, Lionsgate, Anchor Bay, etc., had passed. 
but these are all huge pie-in-the-sky distributors, she giggled at me. After we complete this round, we'll move on to the mid-tier, and if those pass, we'll have a really good chance with a low-tier distributor. Months sometimes passed between calls. Worried that it would all go bleak, I never collected John's $2,000 commitment. This was starting to feel really dumb, and I wanted to be the sole owner of that stupidity. With my wife. Till death do us part. I remember hiding in a study room during my lunch hour to hear more bad news. Past, past, past. They were even nice enough to give me a login to their project tracking website, where I could see a beautifully maintained matrix of all the studios that passed. Independent of the producer's rep, I had been cold sending the film to bloggers and indie film reviewers, all of whom really dug the movie. One gentleman named Matthias wrote a review so profoundly positive, I think he misunderstood the film. He was working for a DVD distribution company called Seminole Films, and they were a low-tier distributor. But when you're $5,000 in the hole, you'll take anything. My producer's rep came across them, discovered that Matthias loved the film, and thought they had something. Even Seminole passed. The film wasn't marketable, they said. The producer's rep then heard a rumor that I had a previous relationship with Troma Entertainment. Maybe they could distribute the film. Please, please join me in reveling in the irony of this. I was so disappointed by my results with Troma on 10 Pounds that I made a film that resisted the style of a typical Troma film, just for most people to assume it to be Troma-inspired anyway. Looking for better distribution, I hired a company to find me that distribution, and we were somehow parked in front of Troma again. There was a moment where I honestly thought I had spent $5,000 to have a second film acquired and sat on by Troma for another 20 years. I'd rather the film not be distributed at all. But it didn't matter because Troma wouldn't return the producer's rep's calls. As Nina and I scraped our dollars together for a down payment on a house, it was hard to not want to jump off the highest building for pulling such a stupid move. I got louder with them as things got uglier, and they got loud at me right back. There's nothing they could do. But they wouldn't be returning my money, that's for sure. All sales were final. Just look at the contract. I turned my attention to Sexually Frank almost entirely, exhilarated by the content and the new crew I had pulled together. Because the movie contained legitimately gay content, emotional character beats, a strong message about sex and relationships, and no Hugh monkeys, we all assumed it would have better prospects, and we were right to some extent. By 2011, when I was ready to do a big festival push, my salary had raised some, and I was able to spend over $1,000 on festival submissions. There are a lot of film festivals in the world, and scrolling through the options on withoutabox.com can be dizzying, so I tried to employ the services of a film school staff member who was hired to assist students with festival and business strategies for their projects. Sexually Frank was submitted as my MFA thesis, so I had the right to ask for her help, but she was pretty useless, taking months to get back to me, forgetting about our meeting when we finally did convene, and ultimately googling festivals in front of me. She did, however, recommend Cinekink a cute but well-attended festival in New York City, dedicated to sex positivity. Though sex was a theme, our film was hardly adventurous, and more focused on the mundane. Regardless, it was the first festival to respond to my submission, and we had gotten in. I took this as an omen that we would get into all the festivals to which I had submitted. Cinekink 2012 was a good time. We had a modest to large crowd and a great reaction, and most of the cast and main crew were in attendance, which is rare. It was my first successful festival screening for which I was present. But inevitably, the rejection letters started rolling in, one disappointment after another. Some were little or unknown festivals, but they still gave us the big R. I remember one festival, Dances with Films, not little or unknown, was nice enough to provide feedback, so I expected them to say something critical, but all it said was, The decaying of a comfortable relationship gone stale was well-paced and well-played. Brave performances. 
not at all what the film's about, but well-paced and well-played, brave performances. Are you sure I can't interest you in the film? Trying to get something for the $5,000 I spent on the producer's rep, I asked if they would rep Sexually Frank for free, since Abo was such a failure. They agreed and began populating the status column of the film with more past. All of the top tier and several of the mid-tier distributors had passed almost immediately. Many months later, I received an email from the Sydney Underground Film Festival that started with big red all-caps font that said, CONGRATULATIONS! It looked like a scam, but insisted that I was accepted to their festival. Their website advertised the film as screening in Sydney, Australia in September, and my friends and family encouraged me to go. I made an expensive call to Catherine Berger, one of the two programmers, who was very sweet and offered to pay for a hotel for any cast or crew that attended. As the news circled around Facebook, an old friend dropped me a line. Keith Sadik. My circle of friends and I have given Keith a lot of grief over the years, perhaps mostly regarding his insulated, self-sheltering personality. For the first years he had his license, he didn't know how to drive to the next town over. He's a total homebody. And now, he was saying that if I go to Sydney, which is so far away from Boston it might as well be another planet, he'll go with me. It became a Mexican standoff. I'll go if you go. No, I'll go if you go. We went. This was one of the rare post-filmmaking experiences I had that was decidedly not underwhelming or a scam. The festival was led by a film professor named Stefan Popescu. Stefan, if you're listening to this, I'm so sorry if I butchered the pronunciation of your name. And his partner, Catherine, who were both underground filmmakers. And through his employment at Sydney College of the Arts, the festival had a nice affiliation with local film students. They put us up for four nights, provided us with a lovely tour guide and film student named Holly, invited us to speak on a local radio show, and ultimately hosted the most packed, engaged, and successful screening of one of my films I've ever attended. Sexually Frank went on to win a Director's Choice Award for 2012. Aside from the valium-addled 40 hours we spent in the sky, and Keats and my ability to bristle each other's britches, the trip was worth every cent of airfare. When I got home, I received an email from who other than Seminal Films. Our company, Seminal Films, is interested in viewing a screener of your project, Sexually Frank, on DVD for DVD, VOD, and digital distribution in North America. They had discovered Sexually Frank through Sydney Underground and wanted to talk to me about a possible release. One thing that struck me as funny was that they had a P.O. box at the NBC Universal building in L.A. I had to assume this was to inflate their relevance, but it couldn't hurt to talk. The gentleman I spoke with, Gabe, it's always something like Gabe, isn't it? Was less manipulative than the producer's rep, if nothing else. He explained that Seminal, which you'll remember was the distribution company that my old friend Matthias had once worked and rejected Abo, was owned by the De Silva Group of Companies, who were most well known as a record label in Canada, and had somewhat recently started distributing films. Gabe said most of the right things. They're percentage-based only, and their contracts are typically only for two years, and they're required to release the film within the term date. There was a time when I wanted nothing more than an in-store DVD release of one of my films, but the year was 2012, and the glory days of DVD sales were long gone. I assumed that Gabe would tell me they had a clear video-on-demand strategy, but oddly, he told me that even though DVD sales had plummeted, it was the only way most distributors knew how to monetize home video. A DVD release would still be the primary mode by which they distributed the movie. I remember the producer's rep telling me the same thing. This seemed backwards and begging to fail, but like Abo and 10 pounds before it, I just wanted to give the movie a home, and I had no reason to believe another opportunity like this would come along again. Although the producer's rep was working on Sexually Frank for free, if they had made a successful sale, they would have been entitled to a revenue percentage. 
Fearful that they would ultimately sell the film to Seminal or something like it, which I was obviously capable of doing myself, I terminated my contract with them and decided to pursue Seminal's offer. I haven't spoken with them since. I'm sure they're relieved. Take the money and run. We ping-ponged the Seminal contract a few times, requesting small changes, but I never actually signed it. They started requesting materials like 30 DVDs for press, the poster art, etc., but I never did sign a contract. In the middle of it all, I received this from Gabe. Hi, Frankie. I wanted to let you know that as of the end of this week, I will no longer be working with Seminal Films. If you need anything, contact Rue De Silva, the owner of the company, directly. His email is censored, and his number is censored. It was a pleasure working with you. Hope your film does really well. Gabriel. I wanted to finalize the deal, so I did try to reach out to Rue, who never answered any email or voicemail and never picked up the phone. I must have tried him 50 separate times. Despite the silence, a month or two later, it was brought to my attention that Sexually Frank was available for pre-order on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, Sears, MVD Visual, which was somehow partnered with Seminal, and a slew of other online stores. I knew, secretly, that there was no contract in play and felt in a position of power. If it all goes belly up, at least I can point to that, right? March 26, 2013 was meant to be the date of release. Friends were kind enough to leave Amazon reviews, a few people pre-ordered it, and I did something I had fantasized about doing for years. I went to a movie store, the movie stop in Seekonk, Massachusetts, and pre-ordered it in person. They found the DVD available in their catalog, rang me up, and the receipt clearly read, Sexually Frank DVD. After a non-responsive trauma, followed by an experience that felt like downright theft, not to mention the thousands wasted in rejected film festival submissions, I could at least buy my movie on DVD from a store. It was a milestone, to say the least. Then March 26 arrived, and the pre-order now text transformed into release date, April 26th. It was deflating, but hope wasn't entirely lost. I couldn't call the distributor for an explanation, because he wouldn't pick up, but... At least there was some hard data there, right? It's been delayed a month. Whatever. Then April 26 transformed into out of stock, and it would stay that way. Anytime I picked up pre-ordered Blu-rays or DVDs from that movie stop, yes, I'm one of the few poor souls who still buys DVDs and Blu-rays, they would tell me, okay, so it looks like Sexually Frank isn't in yet, but we'll call you when that's ready. After five months or so, I told them to cancel the pre-order. I tried finding Rue through other means and harassed him on Twitter, but it turned out there's more than one Rue De Silva who's in the music industry. I was attacking the wrong guy. I never did speak to Rue. I did, however, speak to Matthias when he guessed it on episode 31 of my podcast, Discount Film School. He informed me that MVD Visual, a pretty awful-looking DVD distributor, actually bought Seminal and that I should try speaking to them directly. I submitted a question about the release through their little comments, feedback, text box. This was several months after we shot Having Fun Up There, so I was more concerned about my fourth film than my third, but I still thought it was worth a shot. Hello, last year I was in talks with Seminal Films, which was bought by MVD, to release my film Sexually Frank on DVD in North America. It was set for a March release, and when that date came, all sites publicizing the sale of the film were simply never shipped a unit. I'm looking for a status on this. It's posted on your site, but the movie really has never been released. Thanks, Frankie. Later that day, a guy named Ed responded, copying a guy named Dave. It simply read, Dave, please completely cancel this release. It is never coming out. I thanked them for their reply, but asked for an explanation. This is the final word on the entire debacle. I don't really remember truthfully, but Rue is not well and has been largely out of touch for about a year. I believe he set this up with us, then told us to hold off on releasing it, and never communicated further since. That's about all I know. Another wacky distribution story. 
the routine was getting exhausting. Perhaps these anecdotes have been helpful in explaining why. So what are you going to do with your movie now? Can be a murderously frustrating question. What's more upsetting is that I'm fairly convinced my films are not bad. Well, at least from Abo on. Because I've seen them connect with audiences. And yet, from a distribution and release perspective, each one of them is a spectacular failure. Toward the end of my time with the producer's rep, they had recommended that I take advantage of an online service called Distribber, in which you pay the site $1 to $2,000 per film, depending on what you sign up for, to get your movie on iTunes, Amazon VOD, Hulu Plus, Netflix, and several others. After the initial fee, whatever revenue iTunes, Netflix, etc. generates for the film goes straight to the filmmaker. The idea was insulting, coming from a group to whom I had paid $5,000, and I didn't really understand the model. Apparently, Distribber was able to penetrate the golden gates of selling to these media giants? I kept an eye on it, and saw Distribber bought by Indiegogo, which was a relatively large crowdfunding website for independent films. That lent some legitimacy to Distribber in my eyes, and I had started to consider it as an option for some of my films. £10 rights were lost to Troma until I turned 40, so that was out. I had already spent enough money on the failure that was Abo, and during my negotiations with Seminole, Sexually Frank was tied up as well. I received the This Ain't Happening emails about Sexually Frank toward the end of post-production on having fun up there. My best two films were now entirely owned by me, and I wasn't in the mood to run on any more hamster wheels. When having fun up there was complete, my goal was to submit both films to Distribber and wash my hands of the whole disaster. I checked the site to make sure it was still viable and operational, and immediately noticed that the submission process was down for maintenance. It mentioned something about them adding a ticketing system. I put a pin in it while I began submitting having fun up there to festivals.